0: It's the amazing Rico Brogna Podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Baseball is back. Sort of. I mean, it's sort of baseball. We had baseball games on TV on Saturday and Sunday. Now, they didn't count. They didn't cause any stress. They didn't cause any excitement. They didn't cause any anger. But guess what? You had the opportunity to sit there on your fat tookus and watch baseball for the first time in five months. Welcome to the Baseball is Back edition of Rico Bronya. Very busy Rico today. I'll lay it out for you. So if you don't want to listen to parts of this edition, you can skip around. We'll start with these games, the game from Saturday, the game from Sunday, what I learned, what we didn't learn, what I took from each of these two games. So we'll get into some spring training baseball. A little bit later on, we'll talk about the new timetable that's sort of been laid out for Kodai Senga, the spring plans for Brandon Nemo and Starling Marte, the potential opening day starting pitcher, and we will listen to a few of your voicemails and respond to some of your emails. So that's the way we'll lay out today's show. Of course, we appreciate you downloading and subscribing. If you haven't subscribed, you should do that. Wherever you download your podcasts, rate, subscribe, do the whole thing. Now let's get to these games, because the way this usually goes for me now as a 40-year-old man is I get a little excited for that first spring training game. I do. I whip out the scorebook, and I even score the first spring training game. I admit it. And the way the last few years have gone is by the middle of the first game or maybe by the second game, I'm already completely over spring training. I get over it. I get it out of my system. I've seen baseball. I've seen our beautiful uniforms, and I say, okay, wake me up when it's for real. I I can't tell you why. I can't explain why, and maybe it's because – I had my sons with me. Maybe it's because even my wife was watching the game on Sunday after we did a bunch of activities, all on DVR, of course. But I found myself not bored by spring training after two days. I found myself watching, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but I guess it's good for the Rico for this podcast. I literally watched all 18 innings of the two games from this weekend. And I I think it's maybe just the missing of baseball aspect of it. The... The fact that it's been a long winter, the fact that it's very cold outside, the fact that we didn't have the greatest offseason, maybe in a weird way that makes me more excited to just watch baseball and watch the New York Mets. So I felt pretty fulfilled over the last two days watching spring training baseball. Now, as far as what I took out of everything, on Saturday, we got to see Tyler McGill. I guess I should take my flowers for correctly predicting that. (laughs) Tyler McGill was going to start the spring training opener. Uh, But whatever. Tyler McGill has this thing of starting openers. A few years ago, it was opening day. Uh, Last year, it was actually the home opener. We sort of forget that. But the home opener the Mets played in 2023 was started by the great Tyler McGill. But we saw him kind of do similar things to what we saw last year. If you remember, Tyler McGill last year, when he was in the rotation, for the most part, he wasn't bad. But there would constantly be traffic. And there would be guys on base all the time. So I sit down, first baseball game of the year, and three pitches in, he hits Brendan Donovan. I'm like, ah, right, here we go. Right, it's Tyler McGill putting guys on base. And then he gives up a base hit to Lars Newt Bar. So right out the gate, Tyler McGill puts traffic on the base paths, but to his credit, that first and then could have gone worse. He got out of it only allowing one run. Tomas Nito, who just will never... Tomas Nito will not go away. And I mean that with as much respect as I possibly can have. Because Tomas Nito's a good dude. There's nothing wrong with him personally. But I am so sick of watching Tomas Nito play baseball. First of all, I think he's overrated defensively. I think we talk about him like he's Johnny Bench back there. He's not. That wild pitch he gave up in the first inning, he probably could have blocked, and it led to a run. But it was a very typical mcgill outing and here's what's tough about judging spring training especially early on and look we have to judge right we're sitting here as fans and we want to know who's going to be in this rotation and tyler mcgill is competing for a rotation spot jose budo who started on sunday is competing for a rotation spot so if you're sitting there watching these guys pitch you're naturally thinking to yourself okay this is a competition how do you do what's so difficult about judging especially early as the starts are just so brief. You know, Tyler McGill, over the course of most of the starts he made last year, would put guys on base, and what that would do is drive up his pitch count to the point where he wasn't able to go very deep into a game and get knocked out in the fourth or fifth inning. And while he kept the Mets in most of the games he started, you really tax your bullpen when you're putting so many guys on base and throwing 105 pitches, and then you got to go to the bullpen in the fifth inning. Obviously, in a spring training game in which you're probably only being asked to throw 35-40 pitches, you're only pitching two innings, we can't judge from that standpoint. But he got through the first inning, he gave up a leadoff hit in the second inning, he got through the second inning, so overall it was fine. We didn't see much of his new spork, American spork, as I think what they're calling it. But I thought what we saw from McGill was very, very typical. And I view McGill as a guy who, as a fifth starter, as a swing starter, as a sixth guy, he's capable of it. Because everything I just described, like keeping your team in a game, not going deep into a game, going four or five innings, maybe giving up two or three runs. In this day and age, that's what you kind of expect from a back of the rotation arm. And that's the spot he's competing for. Now, hopefully someday, maybe this year, he not only is a back of the rotation arm, but takes another step and becomes a more reliable starting pitcher. But I thought what we saw, at least what I saw, from the two winnings of Tyler McGill, it was the same crap as we saw last year. That's the way I looked at it. I did like what I saw defensively from Brett Beatty. He got f because they called an error on him, in which it should have been an error on Tomas Nito. There was a ground ball to third base, and Beatty made a perfect throw home to get the lead runner. Perfect throw. And it was bang, bang. It was not an easy play. And as it was developing, because that's the other thing about spring training, you're looking at certain players and you're looking to see if they've gotten better in any way. So one of the things I want to see from Brett Beatty is better defense. So when a ball's hit to him and he's got a split second to react and he instantly throws home and it's a perfect throw and I'm actually in my chair. I didn't get out of my chair It's spring training, but I'm in my chair saying, ah, look at that. Got him at the plate. And I'm not excited they got him at the plate because, hey, it's 2 nothing. We got to keep it close. No, I'm, I'm excited because, look, Brett Beatty made a play. But if you didn't see it, I'll describe it to you. So Beatty throws it home. Tomas Nito catches it, tags the runner out. And then before you know it, you see Tomas Nito running to get the loose ball because somehow he didn't catch it. Somehow, <laughs> I, I can't stand him. Somehow, the ball got jarred loose from his glove and a run was able to score, a runner was able to advance to second. Look, if this is a real game, we are mother-bleeping Tomas Nito's name out quite a bit because that was a, that's a miscue. Stop telling me how great his defense is and how great his pitch framing is. Make that play. Make that freaking play. And it only bothered me because Brett Beatty got credited with an error. And I, I protested. Pete, I'm holding up my scorecard right now. You can tell the viewers, right? Am I holding up my scorecard?
1: You have the scorecard up. There it is.
0: How how beautiful does it look, by the way? <laughs> I, I, I do have to
1: say, you do have a go- you do make a gorgeous scoreboard. You do. You do a great job.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. Especially when I mean, you've got to write so many names in because everybody gets replaced after four innings. Uh, this is a another shameless plug for his book that's coming out, by the way. <laughs> I didn't even mention that. I didn't mention that, but okay, since you brought it up, my man's Bible, April 2nd. I, I don't have any spring training games in. My book, my Mets Bible. None of them made it. There was no spring training game. There's no, no spring class. training classic. Are you are you kidding me? Nah, I thought about it. I I had one that was almost in the book, believe it or not, and I cut it out at the last second because I picked 81 games to kind of match the 81 home games that a team has, and I started with 90, and I cut nine out, and one of the games that got put on the uh, the cutting room floor was a sort of spring training game. It was the first ever game the Washington Nationals played at RFK Stadium. And it was an exhibition game against the Mets. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but early in 2005, the Mets went down to D.C., played an ugly, disgusting, rainy game in Washington. And I had to be there. And I had to be there not because I'm some crazy Met fan that wants to watch the Mets play an exhibition game. I lived in D.C. for three years. And it was right before they got the Nationals. And I was always hoping, wow, maybe we'll get a team. Maybe D.C. will get a team. Not that I ever, what, would ever be a fan of them, obviously, but it would be cool. And so when they moved there a year after I moved, I said to my dad, I, I just got to go down there. I got to see it. So that game almost made the cut, but it didn't. Anyhow, my long-winded point was I protested. And in my spring training scorecard, I would not put E5. Because I was like, that's bull, bull. Sorry, my son's in the room. That's B.S. I'm putting E2 because that's on Tomas Nito. And I'm sorry. I know it's spring training and it doesn't matter. Weak ground ball to shortstop. Weak ground ball to shortstop. He can't block a ball in the dirt that should have been blocked. He misses a Brett Beatty throw home. I'm sorry I'm spending five minutes on the Rico bitching about Tomas Nito, but I feel like I have to. If we see him in the major leagues this season, I'm going to be disgusted. I really am. Give me Hayden Singer, who hit a home run, by the way, even though he hit like 180 at double-A. Give me Hayden Singer behind the plate before I see Tomas Nito. And that was the other thing. So you sit down for the first spring training game of the year, and in the past, I remember, you would get your regular lineup. Like, you would get all the regulars, and then by the fourth or fifth inning, everybody would come out. Listen to this lineup if you didn't see it. DJ Stewart. Lindor, Alonzo, Beatty, Vientos, Jose Iglesias, Trace Thompson, Tomas Nito, and Taylor Colway. What the hell is that? I mean, that, you know, DJ's a part time player. Lindor, Alonzo, Beatty are all starters. Vientos will see. And then Iglesias, Thompson, Nito, and Colway are very unlikely to make this team. So you're talking about four guys who aren't even going to be on the major league roster. <laughs> I guess that says more about me being excited to, to score this game and watch this game when we weren't getting that many regulars. We didn't get them. But seeing Tomas Nito annoyed me. I admit that. The defense overall in this game was pretty lousy. Not that I want to judge how improved this team is going to be defensively, because they should be. But again, you're not seeing a lot of regulars. Uh, it was kind of cool seeing Pete Alonzo again, even though he didn't do anything. Just that's the, the thing about... That first spring training game, that's exciting. You get to see your guys. Francisco Lindor ripping a base hit on a 3-0 pitch in the first inning. I was like, all right, there are our guys. The other thing that's not about our guys but jumped out at me was this Nate Lavender who came into the game. Nate Lavender is a left-handed reliever. He pitched in the eighth inning. Lavender put up some very good numbers in the minor leagues last year. High strikeout guy. Also walks probably too many. But Nate Lavender came into this game in the eighth inning. And granted, it's it's against backups. That's the other thing that makes it sometimes tough to judge. And he just dominated them. Just one, two, three, three strikeouts in a row. It wasn't an immaculate inning, but it wasn't that far off. And I guess the reason why that jumps out at me maybe more than any other eighth inning domination you'll see in a spring training game is that Nate Lavender is a guy that Could get here, especially with relievers where you just you don't know who these guys are. And you never know who's gonna just jump up and be that next big thing out of the bullpen. He's 24 years old. He was a 14th round pick back in 2021. I mentioned the numbers from last year. So when he was in Binghamton, he only pitched 10 and a third innings, but he struck out 19 guys, walked three, had a one seven four ERA, goes up to Syracuse, 44 innings. 67 strikeouts, which is 13.7 strikeouts per nine innings. He did walk 23 guys, pitched to a 3.27 ERA, had a lot of reverse splits. Was actually better against righties than he was against lefties. Which in this day and age, you kind of need. You know the days of oh, but he he's murder against left-handed batting. Well, guess what? There's a three batter minimum, and most teams aren't going to just send you three lefties back to back to back. So that. Performance by Lavender jumps out at me because he could be a dark horse reliever who maybe makes the team out of spring training, but more likely than that, we see at some point this season. Because again, we're going to see a crap ton of relievers throughout this season. Usually it's the guys with options. Usually it's the, the guys with control. And Nate Lavender's a young guy, he's only 23 years old. Actually just turned 24 years old which here's the sick part about Nate Lavender. And I know he's not alone in this. There's a lot of guys now who are like this. He was born in 2000. Does not that make you feel like incredibly old Pete? When you see baseball players born in the years of 2000 and beyond.
1: Yeah, it's disgusting. This is not what I like. I mean, listen, and you gotta remember like guys that I loved watching regularly are now retiring. Like Miguel Cabrera was my favorite baseball player to watch. That wasn't a Met. He's now gone. He's retired. And now the next favorite guy is about 23 years old. Sucks.
0: Crazy. Oh, hey, here, here's the other one that you it fits you. It doesn't fit everybody who's listening. If you're in your mid-30s and if you don't have kids, this will be a little unrelatable. I'm sitting there watching this game with Jet, my oldest son, who is seven. And I'm realizing that a lot of the younger players are closer in age to him than they are me. So, for example, Jet Williams, who he's very excited to see, and we got to see him on Sunday finally, didn't see him on Saturday. Jet Williams is 20 years old. He's only 13 years away from a 7-year-old. For me, he's 20 years away. (laughs) So that's the other sign of of age when you start to see guys that are closer to your kid's age than they are your age. But keep an eye on Lavender. That's one of those guys worth keeping an eye on because even though I didn't project him to make the 26-man roster, and he probably won't, because the, the the guys who are out of options always have that edge to make the twenty six man roster. Because you can't send them down, you you risk losing them. A guy like Nate Lavender, you could easily send a triple A and say, "Hey, we'll see you in April or May." Uh, anything else from that game? Jump out at me, not really. Josh Walker got his ass kicked. We had to, we got to hear a great story that Josh Walker improved. I guess the strength in his hip, and how that's going to make a difference. That, that was actually interesting. Gary Cohn was explaining it, that one of the things that happens nowadays is that you've got all these studies and on your mechanics and all these studies on your delivery and guys are able to come to you on the Mets staff and say, okay, here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you need to work on. And somehow with Josh Walker, I guess they noticed that his right hip was weak and maybe was affecting some miles per hour on his fastball, maybe some break on a slider Uh, But we saw Josh Walker pitch, and I didn't see much of a difference. I'm I'm just kidding. I'm sure he's a lot better, and I'm sure there's more strength in his hip. But in his first spring training game, yeah, he didn't look great. And the Mets got their ass kicked by the Cardinals. That's the best part, though. You lose 10-5, and when the game was over, I moved on very quickly. I forgot all about it. It didn't affect me in any way. I also watched the game like six hours after it concluded because while I may be in a spring training, I'm DVR and the crap out of this thing and skipping the commercials. It's such a great feeling as far as Sunday's game is concerned. Oh, one other thing about, about Saturday's game, because of all the guys that weren't prospects and all the guys in the starting lineup that are probably not on the major league team, that was a little frustrating because you're watching guys that in all likelihood you were never going to see play for the New York Mets. I like Jose Iglesias, and he did have an RBI double in the the game on Saturday, and he's a major leaguer. One thing about Iglesias is that guy's a major leaguer. The fact he wasn't in the major leagues last year is kind of crazy. He's so good defensively. He's had some years where he's hit. Like, that's a major league baseball player. And the idea that Zach Short would somehow make this team over Jose Iglesias, to me, is crazy. Now, the truth is, neither guy's going to make the team, but I'd much rather have Iglesias on my major league roster than Zach Short. No offense to him. But we saw so much of Jose Iglesias, Trace Thompson, Tomas Nito, Taylor Calway, a lot of guys who are just not going to be here. So when Alex Ramirez came in the game, who is still a young enough player, still a pretty decent prospect, even though he didn't perform much in Brooklyn last year, that was kind of cool. We got to see Luis Sanjana Lacuna, and his first at-bat was one of the weakest at-bats I've ever seen. Not that I'm judging it. I mean, he had three of the waviest swings you'll ever find. Uh, So we saw him. Who else did we see? Yomer Sanchez, who cares? Drew Gilbert got into this game. So on Saturday, if you hung in there late, you got three at-bats out of Alex Ramirez, outfield prospect. You got three plate appearances from Luis Angel Acuna, and you got two plate appearances from Drew Gilbert. On Sunday, if you waited, you got to see Jet Williams. And the one thing that jumped out at me about Jet on Sunday is his speed because he got a massive jump after he drew a walk, which is another one of his attributes. That's real good. Like a high on base guy. He's got a great eye and that's awesome for a young player. I mean, look at the Yankees last year with Anthony Volpe. He didn't have the greatest here in the world, but I thought what was able to kind of help during his young slumps is a guy who knows the strike zone as well as that. I really mean that because if you're a young player and you're struggling at the major league level, It makes it a little bit easier if you're putting together good at-batch and you're still getting on base every once in a while. It's tough when you're a a hacker and you're struggling. So Jet Williams is known for having a real good eye, but in his second plate appearance, he draws a walk and then took this Ricky Henderson-like lead and just took off. So when you think about what he can be at the major league level, and, and by the way, there's something that pisses me off. (laughs) This this annoyed me for no end. It's not racist. It just annoys me. All right. Here's what it is. Why do we only compare players who are of the same ethnicity? So what I mean by that, I'll be specific. You know, Jet Williams reminds me of. He reminds me of Jose Altuve. He reminds me of Jose Altuve because they're both tiny, because they both have a little bit of pop And they play the game with a reckless abandon. He just reminds me of Jose Altuve. And I think that's a fine comparison. So I forget who said it. It may have been Ron Darling. It may have been Gary Cohen. One of them was like, you know who Jet Williams reminds me of? And I scream at the top of my lungs, Jose Altuve. Like who the hell wouldn't want to be compared to Jose Altuve? And they give me Dustin Pedroia. Now I get the comparison of Dustin Pedroia, but have Dustin Pedroia. Like what? How about the guy who's playing right now? Why don't you give me the comparison to the greatest second baseman in the history of the sport who's still playing right now? And sometimes, I said this to my wife, who's Latina. I said, is it like weird to compare someone who's not Latino to someone who is Latino? Is that like a thing? Or am I just, am I being oversensitive? Maybe I'm being oversensitive because I love Altuve and I want him to be compared to Altuve and not that Dustin Pedroia who I couldn't stand. But that's just the thing I've noticed.
1: I mean, listen, it's better than him being like compared to like David Eckstein.
0: So that that <laughs> yeah, we got we got lucky there. That's a good point. That would annoyed me. That one that one would have annoyed me, but I'm excited about Jet Williams, as is my son. Uh the rest of that game, we did see Kevin Parada get in the game. That was nice. Uh, but that lineup, the lineup for Sunday was so worse than the lineup for Saturday in terms of excitement. You had Tyrone Taylor, Francisco Alvarez, who went Oppo Taco, more on that in a second, G-Man Choi, Mark Vientos, Luke Voigt, Ben Gammel, Zach Short, Yomer Sanchez, Alex Ramirez. So think about this. You've got three guys in your starting lineup who are going to make the team and six guys who are not. <laughs> there used to be a rule in spring training that you had to send four regulars. That used to be a thing. That is not a thing, because then you look at the Astro lineup. When the Astro lineup was put up there, and I think I know baseball, I recognized like three guys in the lineup, and I think I know baseball. Kennedy Corona, I didn't know. Victor Caratini, I knew. Will Wagner, I didn't know. Found out it was Billy's son. Corey Jolks, I know from last year. He kicked our ass in Houston. Pedro Leon, no idea. Chris Giddens, I do remember with the Yankees. Shea Whitcomb, no idea. Dixon Machado, I'd heard of as a backup, and CJ Stubbs. Like, how the hell is this a major league lineup? Imagine paying $55 spring training. You're like, ah, I'll get two Astro regulars. I'll get maybe, maybe I'll get Kyle Tucker. Maybe I'll get Jordan. Maybe I'll get Altuve. Maybe I'll get Bregman. Maybe I'll get one of them. And literally, the biggest player you got was Victor Caratini, who's not even really an Astro. But uh, as far as is concerned, cause Budo made the start. He's the other candidate I, again. He was fine. Gave up a hit, got through it in the first inning it was blue, but it was soft contacts. You don't make much of it. Struck out a couple of guys. There was some more hard contact in the second inning, but got through it. So he ended up going two scoreless innings. We saw Austin Adams pitch a scoreless innings. He's a candidate for the bullpen. Uh, Cole Sulser, uh, this Paul Jerevese who put up some massive numbers down at Single Lake, could not find the strike zone, but was able to get through it. And the Mets won the game, and they won the game because Francisco Alvarez reminded us of who he is. Took a pitch near his eyes and tomahawked it to right field. Went opposite field, Piazza-like, with a two-run home run that was basically the Mets offense. They won 3-1, to but that was cool to see. That was a reminder of the excitement. Of Francisco Alvarez and how good this guy could be. And I'll tell you right now, off the top, you know, without judging based on spring training stats and assuming the Mets are not adding another bat, that they are going to be content with a Vientos, DJ Stewart platoon, basically, at DH. I'll tell you right now how I would line up the top four hitters. This is what I think I would do. I think in this, a part of this is Protection for Pete, getting my best hitters up in the first inning and lengthening my lineup. Right off the top, I'd go Nemo one, Lindor two, Alonzo three, Alvarez four. I, I think I would do it. I think I would throw the kid right in there at protecting Pete. And by the way, think about how deep this lineup is. After Alvarez, I go McNeil, I go Marte. That's not a bad one through six. You like that idea? Would you set up McNeil at two or Marte at two? I know Marte, when he hit two years ago, was in that two slot. But just off the top, because I don't think our opinions are going to change based much on spring training, other than maybe Starling Marte just hitting the cover off the ball. How would you line up your top of the order?
1: Yeah, I I, I think that, personally speaking, Marte better at at the bottom six just because, like... I don't trust him right now. I really I really don't. Um do we use Alvarez as the protection piece? That's that's a good question. I feel like if I because I, I didn't really think about this yet, but I, I, I still don't really like Nemo
0: as the as the leadoff. I don't you're nuts. I, Who would you rather you have, have lead off than Nemo? The guy gets on base, man.
1: I, I still like McNeil there. I still like McNeil. Eh. I know that's a tough one. Fine. But I'll I'll do Nemo. I'll go Lindor. I would probably swap Marte and and McNeil. I'd probably put McNeil back to six. But I'd probably make it Alonzo and Alvarez.
0: So last year, for anyone keeping track, Marte started the year batting second and batted second a lot in 2022, when it was all said and done, the guy who batted second more times than anybody else was Francisco Lindor, and the guy who batted third more than anybody else was Francisco Lindor, which I kind of find funny. <laughs> Lindor, he, he started 68 games batting second and 69 games batting third and 22 games batting cleanup. But the other guy who batted second a lot was Marte, uh, and that was mostly early in the season. And then after that was Francisco Alvarez. He was the guy who batted second, third most. McNeil did not bat a lot of second. Um, so we've seen it from Lindor. He could bat second or third. I, I like the idea, especially in the early going. And maybe some of this is mental. He's telling Francisco Alvarez, bro, we believe in you. You're protecting Pete Alonso when you're the cleanup hitter. And I know the cleanup hitter is not the same spot. Maybe it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago but you're the cleanup hitter. And maybe that little bit of confidence that you give him coming right out the gate. Cause he had such a great year last year defensively. And you know, he was up and down offensively. I mean, I think overall we would take what we got out of him in a rookie season, but he was wildly all over the place. Inconsistent, huge month, crappy month, huge month, crappy month. And look, is subject to change, right? If Alvarez isn't hitting, no one's saying yes to main bat and cleanup, but I like that right off the top. And a lot of that is, I want Lindor and Alonzo, my two best players, batting in the first inning. I'm big on that. So at this moment, I lean towards Nimmo, Lindor, Alonzo, one, two, three, Alvarez, four, McNeil, five, Marte, six, and, you know, we'll get to the rest of it later. I guess Beatty, seven, uh, Vientos, eight, and then Harrison Bader, nine, just off the top. Uh, One last thing from the game. Speaking of Mark Vientos, Mark Vientos has hit a little bit so far. I think he's two for four. He made an error, and it wasn't like the worst error in the world. It was a short hop that ate him up a little bit, and Mendoza even said after the game that was mostly on positioning. But early on, we're one game in. Brett Beatty won. Mark Vientos, nothing if you're scoring at home in terms of defense because, look, both guys are going to play. You know, right now, the way this roster is constructed, both Brett Beatty and Mark Vientos are going to play a lot. Now, there'll be days where Joey Wendell plays, so it's not going to be every every single day, but both guys have a chance to be regular players. It's more who's playing third base and who's DHing. And not that Brett Beatty reminded anybody of Brooks Robinson, but I think he's closer to that than Mark Vientos is, and Mark got off to a little bit of a slower start by making that error In the forget what inning it was, second inning, third inning. Let me let me look at my scorecard. Hold on one second. He made it. In the um, does anybody care? No, nobody cares. Fourth inning, nobody care. No, nobody cares, but you have, but that's okay. That's why we love you. uh, All right, let's get to what everybody cares about. That's Kodai Senga. So, the update we got is that Kodai Senga got the injection. And he's not going to throw for three weeks. So what that tells us is at the minimum, at the minimum, at the very best, Kodai Senga is now about four weeks behind everybody else. Do the math on that. We aren't seeing Kodai Senga for the first three to four weeks of this major league season. And if we did, that's a win. You know, I remember saying this on the air. I may have said it on the Rico as well. If Kodai Senga is back by May 1st, that's a major victory. I would sign for that right now. Sign me up. That's a that's a W. You, you get through a month. It's about four or five starts. Hopefully, you survive it. Think about it. If it's four or five starts, I don't think the Mets were going 5-0 and and Senga starts anyway. Let's say they were going to go 4-1, and one, and instead they go 2-3. and three. That's a two-game difference. It's not the end of the world. The problem is that's a best-case scenario. So we have to see, A, does he start a throwing program three weeks from now? Because all we know is that at the minimum, he's not throwing for three weeks. So three weeks from now, how does he feel? Are the symptoms gone? So step number one is, okay, you're cleared to throw. Now he starts throwing. Does he feel any of that same achiness he felt the first time? Can he get through bullpen sessions? Can he eventually get into a spring training game? Because there actually would be time. Ah, uh, you know what? Probably not. I'm trying to think. Like, we get into a spring training game, probably not. I think we're looking more at extended spring training. Once our attention is up at the major league level and the Mets are playing real games, maybe starts pitching then. Uh, and can he get through starts? How does he look? How does he feel? And if they could pass all of those checkpoints, then we see him on May first. If there's any kind of setback, you're now looking at middle of May. You're looking at June first. You're looking at the middle of June, and It's daunting. Like, I I don't want to wave the white flag or or say the season's over, but this is a race. This was the one guy that you looked at and felt, hey, I trust what they're going to get out of him. And here we are sitting here. It's not even March 1st yet. And we've accepted he's out for a month with the possibility it's going to be two or three. So look, the update wasn't surprising. It's good to have the information as a fan and kind of know, okay, this is what's going on. This is where we're at. But I, I, I still think it's naive to think he's going to get through this perfectly fine and we're going to see him on May 1st. And then the question is even if you get through all those checkpoints and Sanga's back in the middle of May or early May, has he pitch? Does this affect him? Does he pick up where he left off? So, sucks, man. It really does. And it's a reminder that starting pitching is so unreliable. There are so few guys. Look, Garrett Cole certainly fits the bill. There's a handful of other guys that you can look at and feel like they're reliable. But here's a guy comes over from Japan. He made most of his starts over there. I know there was some concerns about his medicals, but apparently the only concerns really was just the wear and tear that he's thrown so much in Japan. Comes out last year, makes 29 starts we're feeling like, ooh, maybe he'll make more starts on regular rest. No chance of that now. Keep that in mind. Like, when he comes back, assuming he comes back, you think the Mets are going to be in any kind of rush to throw this guy on regular rest after only made three starts last year on regular rest? Fat chance. Now, the hope is, this is the optimist, that whoever takes his rotation spot, and, and, and keep this in mind, no one else from this rotation has pitched yet. And the reason I say that is, Let's not just assume it's only one rotation spot that needs to be filled. What if there's another injury? What if someone else goes down? And I'm not saying that to be negative. I'm saying it because that's pitching in 2024. It's tough to trust everybody. The hope is everybody's healthy. The hope is Severino and Minaya and Quintana and Hauser have no problem. But if there is a problem, now all of a sudden you're really going into your depth. But hopefully someone steps up. Let's say it's Tyler McGill. Because if I had to guess right now, I think he's the guy based on the experience that he has. Can he pitch well enough to where when Senga comes back, we're all saying, hey, I don't want to drop anybody from the rotation. Let's just keep it with a six man rotation. But so far, McGill, he was fine in his first start. Budo was fine in his first start. I guess they're going to give Max Kranich an opportunity in this competition. Joey Lucchese, who you could argue, I know he's one of your guys, Pete. He probably looked the best at times last year, though Budo pitched well down the stretch too. So who's your guess right now uh, on who gets this spot? I, I'm thinking it's Tyler McGill.
1: Just from experience, probably Tyler, but I think Lucchese really does have a good shot at it too. because And this is what it's going to come down to. And I, I, I kind of don't hate, the news that came out with Kodai Senga because it's going to allow these guys like Tyler McGill for Budo, for Lucchese, for, was it Max Kranich? Is that his name? Yep. yep. They're going to fight for their, a job. Like, it's they have a legitimate spot to be on the major league rotation come March 20, what, 28th, 29th, whatever the date is. Like, so – you're going to get the best out of them. I think Luke Casey is somebody that when he throws his best, has the best out of all those guys, just not consistent enough.
0: The question that I I don't think uh, Carlos Mendoza has even been asked yet, and maybe because it's just way too early, and maybe because most Met fans are going to shrug their shoulders at the question, which is, who's the opening day starter? We know it's not Kodai Senga. Who gets that incredible honor? to pitch opening day for the New York Mets. I put a poll out about three days ago when Senga first went down to kind of get the instant reaction from Met fans. And it was the way I worded it was, assuming they can get to opening day healthy, because that's a big assume, who should get the prestigious honor of starting opening day for the Mets at City Field? And I left Tyler McGill out, even though that's a guy that I think most Met fans would say, just give it to him. And I think the reason we say it is because he's done it in a weird way, twice. So there are two opening days in my mind. This year, there's only one opening day, but you've got opening day. And then you have the home opener, which unfortunately the last few years, the Mets have had their opening day on the road. So we essentially get two opening days when that happens, the first baseball game of the season, and then your first home game of the season. Pete Alonzo actually made this point recently. I didn't even think about it for Pete Alonso. This is going to be his first real opening day at Citi Field because in 2019, the Mets were on the road. That was his rookie season. In 2020, the Mets were at home, but there was no fans there. And it was obviously a very Fugazi opening day. In 2021, the Mets opened up on the road. In 2022, the Mets were supposed to open at home, but the lockout altered the schedule. So they opened on the road last year, opened on the road. So the Mets and Pete Alonzo specifically haven't had, and for us, if you're a Met fan who goes to opening day, we have not had a real season opening, opening day since 2018. That's kind of crazy when you think about it. So you, you kind of have two honors. You have opening day. And then if you open on the road, like the Mets have, you have the home opener. Tyler McGill started opening day a couple of years ago. And then last year started the home opener. I don't know if anybody remembers that. So Tyler McGill has had the honor twice. I didn't include him in this poll only because we don't know if he's going to be in the rotation. Now, Joey Lucchese, as we mentioned, Jose Budo, Max Kranich. So I put Quintana, Severino, Manaya, and Hauser amongst those choices. If it was up to you, Hoff, and obviously we don't have an emotional connection to any of these guys, Hauser, Manaya, and Severino have never even pitched as a Met yet. Your answer on who should start Opening Day is who?
1: I voted. I actually voted, and I put down Quintana,
0: based on the fact that he was a Met last year, or another reason. Uh,
1: that's basically it. I mean, I, at least I know I'm familiar with the guy. If, if let me put it this way, if there was if Yamamoto was a Met and and got signed to a huge deal. I'd put him there because he's the big flashy ticket. There's no big flashy item that we brought in. And Quintana has been the Met longest. So it goes to him.
0: You know, it's funny if you look at home openers, so specifically the home opener last year was Tyler McGill. The year before that was Chris Bassett, who was not a Met prior to that. The year before that was Taiwan Walker, who was not a Met prior to that. So the Mets actually had back-to-back years, 21 and 22, of starting guys with no history with us on home openers, and then obviously Tyler McGill, a little bit of a history. Uh, I mean, I agree with you, it's Quintana, but my answer is a little bit different. It's not because he pitched for the Mets last year. You know, Unfortunately for Jose Quintana, it's not his fault. By the time he got back from being injured, the season had spiraled out of control. I remember his first start he made as a Met. It was at City Field against the White Sox. And the only reason I remember it so specifically is it was the first game I took my youngest son to where it was just me and him and and, and my father. So grandpa came as well. But the first time where he went to a game and you know, mom wasn't there, his mom wasn't there. Not my mom, my wife wasn't there. And so special, as you know, when you take your kids to a, a first game of sorts. And I'll never forget, like, he got a little cranky in the fifth inning. And I was strollering him around. He's two years old at the time. And I was talking baseball to him, like to try to calm him down. And I remember saying, Spence, our season's already over. And this uh, this poor SOB is making his first start. And he doesn't even realize it's all out of control. If we only had him three months ago, maybe things would be different. Uh, but the reason the answer to me is Quintana is he is the best pitcher of the group. Like, Jose Quintana, and I I sort of think it's going to be underrated because of the fact that, A, the Mets were out of it last year, like I pointed out, and then before that, some of us don't necessarily pay attention to what's happening outside of, like, our universe. But Jose Quintana, when he pitched for the Mets last year, was so solid, right? So you forget about it because they were out of it. The year before that, he got traded to the St. Louis Cardinals at the trade deadline. And I'd argue, pound for pound, performance wise was as good of a trade deadline acquisition as a team could make. He goes to St. Louis, makes 12 starts, pitches to a 2.01 ERA. And even before that was having a good year with Pittsburgh, ended up finishing the year 32 starts, 2.93 ERA. So when you combine what he did in 2022, what he did in the 13 starts he made for us, he's just more reliable than any of these other guys. Look, Luis Severino and Sean Manaya are similar in that both guys have pitched like aces before. They just haven't done it in a while. Like I was making this joke to a friend the other day. If Luis Severino, Sean Mania, and Jose Quintana pitched to their best season that they've already had, you know what I mean? Like, not some fictitious season they're pulling out of their ass, like they pitch to their best season, the Mets would have one of the best rotations of baseball. You think I'm kidding? Now, I'm not predicting that by any stretch, Pete. I'm not telling you, oh, yeah, all that's going to happen. I'm just saying that those guys have a track record where if they pitch to their career seasons that they've already accomplished, the Mets wouldn't just have a solid rotation, they'd have an awesome rotation. Because Severino and Mania have had ace-like seasons in their career. Problem is it hasn't been a while like that. That's the issue. It's it, you know, it wasn't last year, you know, it wasn't five weeks ago. It was a long time ago. By the way, you should start using that. If you're having arguments with people who think the Mets suck, just say, if these guys pitch to the, their career seasons, the Mets would have the, like the 96 brave rotation.
1: <laughs> well, I, I gotta be honest with you. I used that the other day on the air uh, when I was hosting and it felt bad coming out, but the reality is you're right. Like, Louis Severino, every single Yankee fan out there was was always used to fight with me, saying, "Guys, you know, an ace, he just needs to stay healthy." You know, that's really what it came down to. He he wasn't healthy enough, and last year he clearly was just terrible. But if the Mets fix his whatever pitches that he's tipping. You know, hopefully he could become half as good as he once was, and I—that's that, why I, I'm more optimistic, even with the injury to Sanga. I'm still more optimistic than most Mets fans are going into the season.
0: Now we'll get to some of your emails, gmail.com. We also have a way where you can leave us voicemails. Let me see if I remember the number. Okay, seven. It starts with a seven. Yes. Three. No. Damn it. <laughs> All right. All <laughs> uh, well, right. what's the number in case anyone wants to leave a voicemail to the Rico? 725 222 That should be easy. Right. And then you remember the last one, right? The last four? It was something met related. 99 8699. There you go. We won the World Series in 86 and 99 we should have been there. All right, 725-222-8699. If you want to leave a voicemail, let us listen to voicemail number one.
2: Hey, Evan and Pete. This is Azeem. Thanks for setting up the voicemail. Makes it a lot easier than sending an email, well, to me at least. Uh, So my biggest worry regarding Kodai is the fact that we know his elbow was not in great shape when he signs a deal, if you go and look at his contract terms, there's a specific clause written into it that says if he misses, I think, 130 consecutive days or something because of an elbow or arm injury, the Mets gain an additional option for 2028 at 15 million. So I'm thinking that something must have popped up on his physical before the deal was done. That made the Mets think that hey, there's a chance he could need Tommy John surgery, so we better get some protection written into it, which they clearly did. So it doesn't exactly put me at ease that something's barking with his arm when it's possible that he's already had some pre-existing elbow conditions. So I'm hoping that it's nothing, but I would say that it's a little bit more worrisome that it's happening to him versus someone else. Anyways, thanks, guys. Love the podcast. we with for the next
0: episode. Bye. Um, so when the medicals had questions, John Heyman was the one reporting that, that there were some issues with his medicals. They never got specific. There was never a story that said it was an elbow concern. All that came out was, Maybe there was overall concern with the fact that he threw a ton of innings. Like he ended up throwing 1,340 innings over in Japan. And That's a lot of innings over the course of his major league career. You go year by year, he mostly makes every start. Like he hasn't had years in which he's only made five starts or 10 starts or 15 starts. So we don't know if it was an elbow concern just because it was in the contract. It may have just been, Hey, let's protect ourselves. You know, we know an elbow injury could derail a guy's career for a year and a half. So let's put that in there just in general. So I don't know if they necessarily think he has an elbow issue because those reports have never come out. Like, what about the medicals concern? The Mets? Was it just a general, Hey, he's thrown a lot of innings. There's probably a lot of wear and tear that it was a general concern as far as his contracts concern. Cause I know there's been a lot of talk of, Hey, th- this could be a positive because Kodai Senga has an opt out after his third year that he cannot use. If he doesn't eclipse 400 innings over the first three years of his career last year, he threw 166, So he's certainly ahead of the pace. He only has to throw on average, about 118 innings this year and next year to get to that number. And then he could opt out. Look, The Mets are owned by a billionaire, right? I know sometimes we forget that because this has not been a billionaire offseason. This hasn't been a spend whatever kind of offseason. But I would rather the guy just freaking pitch. You know what I mean? Like, I want to win games this season as a fan. I want to win games next season as a fan. I don't really care about opt-outs and what it may not cost Steve Cohen. Because at the end of the day, if Kodai Senga is great this season and he pitches and he's good the next season and he pitches and he opts out, they better pay him. But it also means the Mets had a better chance to have success. You know, it's like the, the comment Cohen made the other day to Howie Rose when he said, I hope Pete Alonso hits 55 home runs and makes my job difficult. Well, yeah, because if he hits 55 home runs, there's a really good chance that that translates into some wins for us. And isn't that what we're here for? Aren't we here to see our team win? So, look, my concern for Sanga remains the same. What's written in that contract doesn't change my concern. Let us listen to another voicemail while we're here. I just can't take it anymore. Every year, it's got to be something
2: new. Can't even enjoy the first week of spring training without some disaster striking us. Again, laughed at in every group chat, oh man. Ah, What are we going to do, Evan? And I swear to Christ, if I have to watch Tyler McGill go four and one-third every fifth day and destroy the entire bullpen by the time June rolls around, I'm going to have to stop watching this team for good. I can't take it anymore. <laughs>
0: Dude, I, I don't know what we did, though. You're right, because I like, guess, Met fans, we have now had... Think about the amount of spring training, starting pitching injuries and relievers. Obviously, we can't forget Edwin last year that we've had to deal with before the season even starts. 2021, Carlos Carrasco. Remember that one? Carlos Carrasco, big key to the Francisco Lindor trade, innings eater, solid middle of the rotation arm, has his hamstring explode in the middle of spring training. And it started slow. Remember, he had like a little bit of an elbow issue, had a setback. Now he's pitching, and then his hamstring just like explodes into a million pieces. We don't see him till July 30th. And then he sucked. You know, that, then we saw him and it was like, whoa, what did we miss? Obviously, ended up having a good 2022, but his initial impression to us was not good. That was 2021. 2022, we get the Jake stuff. We think we're going to have the Grom and Scherzer. One, two. This is going to be amazing. And we missed Jacob DeGrom for the first half of the entire 2022 season. And then last year, boy, we got hit over the head three times. The Edwin Diaz celebration. Jose Quintana gets hurt after, what was it, one or two spring training starts. And like we talked about earlier, we don't see him until the middle of July. Season's out of control. And then Verlander on opening day. That was a late hit. So we get early hits. We get middle hits. We get late hits. I don't get it, man. Like, we could do a whole podcast trying to figure out what God we offended as Met fans to get screwed every single season. I don't have the answer. It sucks. Let me just say this, though, about McGill. My confidence, sorry, my confidence around this team and why I think they're going to be better than a lot of people think is based on an offense that's going to be a lot better than people think if they can get those mediocre Tyler McGill performances. I know it sounds frustrating and it sounds horrible, but on nights where your offense hits, and if this bullpen's going to be as deep as I think it can be, it may not kill us. Those performances we may look at differently. I've always said this about baseball, and this is why wins and losses with pitchers is the stupidest thing ever. Sometimes you view a start based on how good your offense is. So let me walk you through this, because last year the Met offense was not good. So in a lot of Tyler McGill's four and two-thirds, three-run performances, he'd leave and we'd be down three to one. Let's say this year when he battles into the fifth inning throwing 105 pitches and he leaves at four and two-thirds innings, three runs. What if we're up five-three? You know what I mean? Like, not that it's an amazing performance, but you feel differently about it. And that's going to be the key to this whole season. They've got to hit. They've got to hit. Brett Beatty needs to become a man this year. Francisco Alvarez needs to build off the hotness from the months where he hit last year. And, yeah, you need the reliability out of Pete and Francisco, and you need bounce-back years out of McNeil and Marte. If you don't think that's going to happen, then you're right. This team won't be good. I'll admit they won't be good. But if those things happen and they can hit and they can be a top-three National League offense, then they can win games sometimes where they get those mediocre McGill performances. Let's hear another voicemail.
2: Rico Bronia. First, I'd like to thank you. Uh, I heard my voice message on the last pod of my worry about Kodai Sango. And it turns out I was correct. And we are the Mets and we will always be the match. But I have a question for you. Instead of complaining about the house being on fire, I don't understand these compensation picks that are attached to certain players. Like, how come if we sign Blake Snell, we have to lose a pick? But if we sign other players, we do not. Um, I tried reading about this online, and I couldn't get an, an understanding of an answer. Like, lose international money and a draft lottery pick, I, I believe. I don't know. Can you explain that to me? Uh, and can you also explain to me why the Mets are not sign, signing Montgomery? Please. Thank you.
0: Well, let's start with the difficult one. I don't know why they're not interested in Jordan Montgomery. You know, David Stearns actually popped on the broadcast on Sunday and was asked about, hey, you know, big-ticket items. Mets fans want to know why have they not been involved in any outside of Yamamoto. And the way David Stearns framed it was there are going to be certain big-ticket items that make a lot of sense that we will be involved in and others that don't. And so my follow-up would be, even though we can't really answer it, Why are you not interested in Jordan Montgomery? Now, maybe Scott Boris is asking for way too much if that's the answer. Okay, fine. He probably is. But Montgomery feels like an item, and I don't know if I'd even call it like a big, big ticket. It's a big ticket. It's not a big, big ticket. He makes so much sense on a short-term level and a long-term level. So I don't understand it. It has perplexed me this entire offseason because he's one of the guys that would fit this team moving forward very, very well, for whatever reason, they don't have an interest as far as the draft pick compensation, uh, some players, not all. And in Jordan Montgomery's case, it was because he was traded at the trade deadline are offered a qualifying offer. And if the player rejects the qualifying offer, which they normally do, there is a draft pick attached to them. So anybody that signs Blake Snell would lose a pick. Because of where the Mets are in the luxury tax, there are penalties for spending as much money as they spent. We learned that in the draft when they got bounced back all those draft slots. The other negative that they have is they'd have to give up multiple draft picks. So if the Mets signed Blake Snell because he rejected the qualifying offer, and because of where the Mets are in the tax penalty, they would actually give up their second and fifth draft pick in this upcoming draft, plus a million dollars in international bonus money. That is why signing a free agent that rejects the qualifying offer is less appealing than just signing a free agent that doesn't have one attached. And correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure somebody will, the be at gmail.com. I don't think the Mets have signed anybody who's rejected the qualifying offer in years. Certainly in the Steve Cohen era. In fact, the Mets have been very, very consistent. This is why it annoys me when I hear they don't have a plan. They have a clear plan, it's an obvious plan. And by the way, their plan was similar even when they were signing Verlander and Scherzer. And that was we'll spend a lot of money, we're going to try to win now, but we won't affect our future. We won't trade prospects and we won't give up the draft capital that it takes to sign certain free agents. There has been one trade, one, that this Met franchise made in the Cohen era that they clearly regretted because they gave up a premium prospect, and that was the Javi bias trade. And they trade Pete Crow Armstrong, who's one of the top prospects in baseball, and we'll see what he turns into at the major league level. Outside of that, they have not traded top prospects which I know annoyed us two years ago when they ended up settling for Daniel Vogelbach, Darren Ruff, and Michael Givens. I'm not saying it always works out well, but they don't trade top prospects and they don't sign free agents who have the qualifying offer attached to them. Max Scherzer didn't have it. Justin Verlander didn't have it. Starling Marte, I don't think had it. I'm telling you, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think they've signed any free agents that have had the qualifying offer attached to them. That's why the Blake Snell thing has never been realistic. And I don't blame them. But that's why Blake Snell was offered the qualifying offer. He rejected it. There are certain players, you, you know, when you're traded at the trade deadline, you no longer have that. So I'll give you a specific example with us. The Mets will offer Pete Alonso the qualifying offer. If he takes it, no, he won't. They bring him back one year for some absurd amount of money, $25 million, whatever it is. He's not going to take it. He's going to reject it when he rejects it the protection the Mets have is that if Pete Alonso leaves as a free agent, they will get draft compensation. Now let's say the Mets trade Pete Alonso, which they won't. And I'd be, I'd be rioting if they did, but let's say they trade. Him. That team wouldn't be able to offer Alonzo the qualifying offer. So one of the negatives, and it's a part of why I don't think Pete Alonzo has as much trade value as some think it's not like the team that rents him can say, well, We'll get a draft pick. You don't get anything. So that's the difference between Jordan Montgomery and Bill Lake Snow. We appreciate all the voicemails. Sorry we couldn't couldn't get to all of them. Sorry. It's been a long podcast. What do you want from me? 725-222-8699. I do want to get to a couple of emails because there's some interesting ones, including Willis Rifkin, who wants to comment on the Cody Bellinger signing, which just occurred, and how it relates to the Mets. Willis writes, Rico Crew, am I wrong? Or does this almost pillow contract that Cody Bellinger took possibly make the Mets and Boris think that maybe it's time to come to the table and settle this? I get it. Alonzo's far more consistent than Bellinger, but Cody is a younger player who plays first base and center field. Why wouldn't we put seven to 20 in front of Boris today? So, Cody Bellinger did sign a pillow contract, as you call it. It's like a Joanna Cespedes contract, the first one we gave him, where you give a guy a three-year deal, but it's really a one-year deal. Cody Bellinger will make $30 million this year, and then he has an opt-out. If he opts in, he makes $30 million next year. Then he has an opt-out. And in that third year, he would only make $20 million. So if Cody Bellinger has another productive season, he would opt out. I am deeply concerned about Cody Bellinger. It's part of why I was never intrigued by him as a free agent. I think there are a lot of metrics that point to him being lucky last year. Plus, it concerns me how unplayable he was for a few years. I mean, Cody Bellinger was so bad that he became unplayable. And remember, you know how he got to Chicago? He was not tendered. Like, think about that. Cody Bellinger in 2021 was one of the worst everyday players in all of baseball. He was that bad. In 2022, he was so freaking mediocre, striking out 90% of the time, that the Dodgers said, we need to get rid of him. Now, last year, he had a very good year. Okay, hit 300, hit the uh, 26 home runs, 880 OPS, can't knock what he did last year. But I think when a guy is so bad for three years in a row, in supposedly the prime of his career, there's concern of, well, what is he? So clearly, Major League Baseball agreed with me. By the way, I'm, I'm not on my own because no one else offered him a deal. The contract the Cubs gave him is great in that, in the worst of worst situations, they gave a guy and they overpay him for three years. In the best case scenario, he goes out and has another monster year, and he opts out, and then you got to kind of get to redecide this whole story next year. I think, in a lot of ways, he is just so different than Pete Alonso. You know, Willis mentioned it. Well, the consistency. Yeah, I think that's the the big difference. I think it's a massive difference. So even though, yes, Cody Bellinger is a gold glove caliber player. And yes, Cody Bellinger has won an MVP and his best season in the major leagues is better than Pete's best season in the major leagues. I think you look at what happened between 20 and 22 and you say, I can't trust him. So in my opinion, I don't think one thing has anything to do with the other. Now, with that said, Pete Alonso is going to enter free agency, and I don't know if he's even going to get close to what he thinks he deserves. What gives me hope is that I think the Mets are going to value Pete more than any other team in baseball. So my biggest concern with free agency is always all you need is one owner, all you need is one team. I kind of look at Pete as a guy that may not find that one owner that is more enthralled with him than we are. And certainly Steve Cohen, the other day saying, I'm not tone deaf. We love Pete reeks of an owner. That's not just giving us empty words, but an owner that knows we're going to really try to resign him. And that the only risk is, yeah, one owner completely blows him away, but I'm not sure that owner exists. At least I hope he doesn't exist. (laughs) Maybe I'm trying to talk it into existence. So I don't think the Bellinger signing really impacts the Mets at all. But good question by Willis. We are slowly going to have all these guys sign eventually, right? Matt Chapman's still out there. Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, J.D. Martinez. My expectations are obviously we're not getting any of them. But we'll see. Appreciate the emails, the b at gmail.com. And, of course, the voicemail, 725-222-8698. Nine. We gave you a long Rico today. Hopefully you enjoyed it. We'll pop in some more throughout the week as we have baseball now every single day. It's fake baseball. It doesn't count, but guess what? Non-alcoholic beer is better than no beer at all. Am I right? Am I right? Check out me and Tiki, 2 o'clock on the fan, off with the midday guys at 10 a.m. on the fan. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe to Rico Bronia. Thank you for listening and downloading To Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.